Okay, now we're recording. Thank you, everyone. Welcome to the Tuesday Bible Study. We can get started with a word of prayer. It's nice to have you. Father, we thank you for bringing us into your presence once again to learn, to be edified, to be bettered, to be improved. We pray and we ask for your leadership and your guidance throughout the rest of the session. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Okay, I, I literally saw this coming. <laughs> okay. So, if you remember a few weeks back when we were doing our Bible study, we spoke about, the last thing we spoke about, we were talking about John the Baptist. And what is this all about? Oh, you knew, this is a Bible study, dear. It's a Bible study. That's pretty much it. It's a Bible study. If you just uh, tune in, you'll see what's up. It's just a Bible study. There isn't really much more. It's a Bible study. Okay. So last week, guys, if sorry, two weeks ago, if you remember precisely, we were talking about John the Baptist. And we're talking about that part in his life where he was now questioning. He was at the place where he was questioning. He, he sent his disciples to Jesus to ask him, are, are you really the person we're waiting for? Or are we supposed to wait for, to expect someone else? And we sort of reflected that back on ourselves because we said that that sort of points us to a place maybe where you're in a really dark place in your life. For us, that's what we took from it, that he was a person who was in a dark place in his life that made him question everything, which is something that happened, which is something that happens not only to him, that happened not only to him, but it happens also to us in our day-to-day -day lives. And we explored so many reasons around that. We explored how to sort of navigate that area in your life. Right. So now we're sort of continuing from that place. If you remember, when John the Baptist sent disciples to Jesus, right? He sent his disciples to Jesus to ask him, because he was in prison, if you remember. And he sent his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the one or the, is there someone else we're supposed to be waiting for? I don't know. Maybe he was expecting to be freed from prison. Maybe he was expecting something else. But that's the question that he sent to his disciples to Jesus. And I love how Jesus could have been easily offended. Jesus could have been offended because I can imagine being in Jesus' shoes, like the level of, of offense this could have stirred in me. Could, but this person was there when I got baptized. He is the one who baptized me. And when my heavenly father spoke and confirmed that I, I am I am his son and I'm indeed the Messiah, he was there. This is the same person who was telling so many people about me, you know? So I can imagine that Jesus could have very easily be offended. This person is the same person who was telling people about me. He's also the same person who was there when I was baptized. He's also the same person who was a witness to me. He was also the same person who paved the way for me to come. But then now I'm finally here. And because of a single challenge that he's having, he has doubted every single thing, you know? So I love how Jesus could have very easily been offended and justifiably so. Jesus could have been extremely and understandably offended. But I love his response instead. Instead of, I didn't know, but he, he was there, but you guys were there. You guys, did you not see me and all the things that I did and all that? No, he actually responds and he, he doesn't even respond to John the Baptist. He responds to the disciples and he said, go and tell him what you see. All the things that you're seeing, that the lame are walking, the blind eye, the blind are being seen, uh, the blind are seeing, their eyes are being opened. And he basically pointed the disciples of John the Baptist to his fruits. He's like, this is, these are the things I'm doing. Are these not the things that the prophet Malachi prophesied and told us that the prophet, that, 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 that the, 
son of God will come and will be able to do. So he basically pointed them to that, right? I'm going to read what I wrote here. But instead, Jesus could have been easily offended, but instead he responded by pointing the disciples to the works he was doing or the works he has done as a validation of who he is. This takes me back to Matthew 7 verse 16, which speaks about by their fruit you shall know them. I love that verse because I think it helps us decipher so many things in life because so many times we have so many questions. We have so many questions about, you know, who's genuine, who's authentic, who's this, who's that. But the Bible has given us a very a very easy way to just sort of filter through the noise. The Bible says in Matthew 7, 16, that by their fruit you shall know them. And this is what Jesus was doing, essentially. He literally pointed them to the fruit that he was bearing as the Messiah. And he was like, this is what I'm doing. The blind eyes are being opened. The lame are walking. He pointed them to his fruit. It's like, this is the fruit that I'm bearing. And this is evidence that I am the Messiah. So you go and tell him that. And it brings us back again to the point that our fruit is the ultimate show or telltale sign of our repentance. So many times, other things, we want other things to explain our repentance. We want to speak about our repentance with our mouths, but our fruit and the way we act and the actions we have and the things we speak, ultimately, those are the things that point us to our repentance. Those are the point, the things that point the people around us to our repentance. By their fruit you shall know them, right? And I love also the in the parable of the sower how Jesus goes on to say the seed is the word of God. So every time whether we go to church, whether you go to a church meeting, to a midweek meeting, to somebody they listen to a sermon, it's a seed. The seed of the word of God is being planted in you. But then now by whatever that seed produces in you that comes out as fruit, that tells us the level or the degree to which you partook or you understood the word that was given to you. By their fruit, you shall know them. But where is the fruit coming from? It's coming from the seed of the word of God that was planted in you. So I just thought that was an interesting contrast. So he sent them as witnesses to the same person who had witnessed to them. Now, remember a few weeks back, we spoke about this from the angle of always be a person who encourages even your strong friends. Everyone has strong people in their lives. You have a strong someone, a strong someone. We all have strong people in our lives. But even then when they get to a place where a place of weakness or a place where they can't make sense of things, be the person who encourages them. Jesus sends, sends them to go and affirm and validate the same man who preached to them and told them about Jesus. And it takes us back, I don't know if we spoke about this, to that verse in Luke 22, 31, where Jesus is speaking to Peter and he said, the, the devil is required to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your fail will not fail. And then I love what he says after. He says, after this whole challenge, after all this has happened, strengthen your brothers. I've prayed for you that when that temptation or when that testation period comes, you will not fail. But when you emerge victorious and when you emerge and you've been sifted and you've come out as weed and you've come out clean, right? Don't forget to encourage and to empower your brothers as well. And I think that also applies to us. Within this context of by their fruit, you shall know them. Where is the fruit coming from? The fruit is coming from the seed. The seed is the word of God. That's what the book of Matthew tells us, right? And I love what Jesus says in verse 16. Matthew 11, verse 6, actually not 16. Matthew 11, verse 6. So this is Jesus still speaking to John the Baptist's disciples who were sent to ask him, are you still, are you the Messiah or is there someone else we're supposed to waiting? We're supposed to wait for who will come. So Matthew chapter 11, verse 6 reads, this is Jesus still talking to the disciples. He says, and blessed is he who is not offended 
because of me. I love the contrast or what he's basically saying about offense. I think offense is a very interesting thing. It's very easy to take offense. I think that's why it's called taking offense because because it's very takeable. <laughs> you can easily take offense. It's something that literally happens to every single person. Sometimes a person can say certain words and it's very easy to take offense. But I love how despite how offensive the words that John the Baptist's disciples brought to Jesus were, they were very offensive words because this is the same person who affirmed him. This is the same person who told the world who Jesus was. But then at this point, he was now doubting. So I can imagine that these were very offensive words. But then Jesus goes on to say something very interesting. He says, blessed is he who is not offended because of me. How many times have we been offended at God? Or have we, have we, have we held offense against God? Do you, sometimes you look at your life and you look at things that don't make sense. And you sort of question God. And you get to a point where you, you, you're asking God, why, why is this happening? And you have offense towards God. But Jesus is telling us that there's even a special type of blessing that you get just by not being offended at me. And sometimes I feel like that place of not being offended at God, it comes from a place of knowing that God loves you more than you love you. We love ourselves, we know that. I love myself, you love yourself. That's why someone said, and human, human beings are self-serving at best. They will always look for what, what, what works best for them, what is in their best interest right? But then you have to understand that in as much as all that love you have for yourself, all that love that you have for yourself, that you're always trying to do the best thing for yourself. Well, this situation, how can I come out the best? How can I portray myself the best? How can I come out in the best possible light? You have to understand that God loves you more than you love yourself. You protect your interests because you love yourself, but God loves you more than you love yourself. So it takes us back to that place of understanding that Sometimes to not be offended at God or to be in a place where you don't hold offense towards God because of something that he didn't do because of a certain thing that he delayed that you're expecting would be done by now. It comes from a place that knowing that of knowing that God loves you more than you love you. So sometimes a lot of the things that we want is not even the time. A lot of the, the things that we want, we're not even ready. A lot of the things that we want, we're not prepared. And God withholding that from you is actually a sign of love. And it's very unfortunate that a lot of the times we don't realize that. A lot of the times we realize that when we try to go ahead of God to make this thing that we want now work, yet at the same time we don't know the reason why God is withholding those certain things for us. So it's important to practice. I love this verse. There's a verse I love in Acts 24, 16, where Paul says, Herein I do exercise myself to keep a conscience that is void of offense, towards God and towards man. I love that verse. It's a very fascinating verse because I'm a person who sometimes, a lot of the times I get easily offended. So I always, I, I always be like, what does it mean to exercise yourself to not take offense? Like, what does that mean? What is the practical aspect of that? Because even Jesus is telling us that blessed is he who is not offended at me. And Paul in Acts 24, 16 is saying, me, as Paul, as an apostle, as an anointed apostle, I exercise myself so that I keep a conscience that is void of offense, not only towards people, but towards God. And the fact that he said, I exercise, for me, it validates the fact that it's not easy to keep an, a conscience that is void of offense. Offense is took or is taken, so it's always ready to be taken. But it's an exercise. But then how do you do the What's the practicality of that exercise of not taking offense towards God? We've already spoken about the practicality of not taking offense towards God. 
It's to try to bring your mind or to bring the thoughts into captivity, like that verse says. You try to bring your mind into a place where you understand that in as much as I love myself and I want the best for me, God wants what's best for me. Is there, is, does the word exist? God wants what's best for me more than I want what's best for me. But then how then do you navigate a place of not taking offense or being offended at people? Because Paul is saying, I, I exercise myself so that I don't, get to a place where I'm offended towards God and towards men. How do you, what's the practicality of that? I think the practicality of that sometimes is maybe if you find yourself in a situation where you're offended, forgive naturally, like in your heart. Even if you're in a situation where you find that you've been offended and you're offended in this particular moment. Sometimes that's how I practice exercising, not taking offense. Because sometimes offense, it comes from a place of resentment. Sometimes offense, taking offense and being offended, it comes from a place of letting it sit and letting it simmer. But a lot of the times, what has helped me as an individual to not take offense is in my mind, not necessarily, I may not say to the person directly, but I say it in my mind, I forgive you. Even if the person is not even apologizing or saying anything, in my mind, I am learning to, to, to not even give that offense a foothold, to learn to just say, even in that moment, sometimes it's hard, but in that moment, to just say, you know, I forgive you. In my mind, even if you are walking away from a conversation and you feel like certain words were said, you can just say, I forgive you. For me, that is, that, that's sort of like a practical element of exercising, not taking offense towards people. We've already spoken about how you exercise, not taking offense towards God. So the verse is X 24 verse 16. It's a very interesting verse. It's one of my favorite verses. So we're going to read Matthew 11 verse 7 to 15. Let's see. This is still Jesus with the disciples of John. I'm going to read verse 7 to 15 and then we're going to take some notes. Okay, verse 7, as they departed, these are John the Baptist's disciples, Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John, What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? By what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who wear soft garments and clothing are in king's houses. But what did you go out to see? A prophet, yes. I say to you more than a prophet, for this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. This is validating what we read. If you remember when we started the study of John the Baptist's life, we started from the book of Malachi, where the prophet Malachi was prophesying basically about John the Baptist, saying you come in the spirit of Elijah and this and that. And Jesus is now here validating that is, this is the person. John is the person that was spoken of in the book of Malachi. When they said he's going to come, he's going to come in the spirit of Elijah, he's going to pave the way, he's the person. So that's basically what he's saying. He's quoting that verse from the book of Malachi. He's saying, for this is he of whom it is written, behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, the verse that we started with, if you remember, the verse that we started this Bible study with, there is not reason one greater than John the Baptist he who, but he who is listening to the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And you are, if you are willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. He's basically validating what Malachi said, right? He who has ears, let him hear. So this is so funny for me 
Jesus responds to this whole thing. Jesus responds to John sending people to sort of, in a way, provoke him. Are you really the Messiah? Because right now I'm in jail and maybe I'm expecting you to do some, to do certain things. And I also think it points to the fact that the children of Israel in general, John the Baptist included, I think they expected the Messiah to come maybe more like with a political liberation. But Jesus understood from the jump that he was not there for political liberation. He was there for a different kind of liberation, the one that his father sent him to do. And very few people understood that. Very few people understood that. If you read the if you read the Gospels, so many times you see the disciples sort of hinting or alluding to the fact that they were expecting some sort of like a political liberation. This man is the Messiah, so he's going to get us out of Roman captivity and out of Roman rule, and he's going to liberate us. But Jesus was not here for that kind of liberation. He was here for some other type of liberation, right? And I love how John professed his doubts about Jesus, and Jesus could have been offended. We've spoken about that about offense. But I, what I love more is Jesus' response to what John said. Jesus could have easily say, I said, but aren't you the same guy who was speaking about me? Aren't you the same guy who was validating what I said? Aren't you the same guy? But he actually responds by validating the same man who is doubting him. John the Baptist is doubting Jesus in this moment. But Jesus responds not only by just pointing them to his works, he validates John the Baptist's ministry. Like, no, this, this guy. And he actually, I love how he waited for John the Baptist's disciples to go for him to say it. I mean, he was not doing it for the validation or for them, for the disciples to go then and tell John, ah, he was actually speaking nice things about you. He waited until they left. And then now he started talking. It's like, that that guy, John the Baptist, the guy who was in the, in the forest, who was eating honey and locusts and all of that. That's the guy Prophet Malachi prophesied of. The same way, John the Baptist, throughout his entire life, he was always pointing people to Jesus. Jesus would show up and John would be like, that's the one, behold the Lamb of God, you know? But now he's in a, in, in a it's more like a switching of roles. And Jesus is now telling the people that John the Baptist is the greatest person to ever live. All those prophets that you read of, it ends with John the Baptist. John is the last prophet. That's where it ends in the Old Testament. He's literally the last prophet. And he's saying he was more than a prophet. And even goes on to say, even in the book of Malachi, when he, when the prophet Malachi was talking about someone who come in the spirit of Elijah, this is the man who was who, who, who the prophet Malachi was talking about, and he validates John at his point of weakness, at his point where he didn't even have answers, at a point where you would expect Jesus to to to, to literally act in her, but he's like, no. Even when you doubt me, I choose to validate you. I choose to validate your ministry. And what I took from that is. It's, it's a perfect picture of the illustration of the love of God, that God finds us and validates us, even in our questions, even when we are frustrated, when we are questioning him, God, why are you doing this? Why This doesn't even make sense. What is this? <laughs> you know, even in a place where you, you, you have so many questions and you're hurt and you're frustrated and you're annoyed. In that moment, God still loves us. It's a picture of the love of God. Jesus could have been offended, but instead he chose to validate that man in front of people who probably even heard the doubt that John was echoing through his disciples. But he gets to this place and he starts to validate this man. And it's a beautiful illustration of the love of God, that the love of God validates us in our doubts, in our questions, in our frustration. At a time when nothing makes sense, it's still there to validate us how through his word, right? And 
the truth is God, God is not afraid of our questions, guys. Don't ever get to a point where you feel like you have questions you can't ask God. Ask God. Ask God. God is your father. Ask God. If you have questions and you're frustrated about something, who, who else can you vent to apart from your maker? Vent to your maker. You know, be a person. God is not afraid of your doubt. He's not afraid of your frustration. The same way John was able to tell Jesus, listen, in this particular point in time, are you sure you're the Messiah? And Jesus responded by validation. He responded with love. He responded with kindness. He responded with compassion, right? And this takes me back to the book of Jeremiah 31, verse 3, one of my favorite verses, where God is basically saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. And with unfailing kindness, I have drawn you. What we're seeing in Jesus' response to John the Baptist, it shows us this verse. It's an illustration of this verse. That he has indeed loved us with a love that is everlasting. A love that is not that does not take offense. A love that is rooted in unfailing kindness. That is a picture of the love of God. And nothing can separate you from the love of God. Don't ever let anyone lie to you or trick you or try to, I don't know, to preach strange things to you. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Let's read uh, Romans chapter 8 verse 38 to 39. This is Paul's letter to the Romans, and he's basically saying, For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Now someone can ask, what about sin? Can sin separate us from the love of God? But Romans 5 verse 8 clearly tells us that even when we were yet in sin, when we were yet sinners, before we even knew or understood who God is and understood his love for us, even now, you can be born again and not even understand the love that God has for you, how deep it is, how far it is, how wide it is, right? Romans 5 verse 8 actually tells us that even when you guys were sinners, before you, before Christ even died for you, he still demonstrated his love for you. Then what then is the effect of sin? Does it affect the love that God has for me? No, it doesn't. God's love for you is never changing. It's there, right? He died for us while we had sinners. Before we even knew him, that's when he died for us, right? But what sin does is sin is more like a stumbling block to fellowship and to relationship, not to love. The love is always there, right? What sin does is sin gives the devil a platform to operate from. So many times our, our lives are guarded, our lives are sealed, our lives are protected. But so many times we... We, we get to, to places of stumbling. We get to places where maybe we open certain doors through sin. And that gives the devil a legal foothold to frustrate certain things in our lives. Because we have opened certain doors by certain sins and by doing certain things. So what that does is it gives the devil a platform. That's why Paul in one of his letters goes on to say, do not give the devil a foothold. The devil isn't looking for a whole room. You know, I always say that. He isn't looking for a whole room. He isn't looking for a two-bedroom house. Just give him a small window and he will terrorize you in that window. You see? Because ultimately, sometimes... Okay, let me give an example of a person whose destiny is great, right? What the devil can do, he can open a small window. Or you, as an individual, you can open a small window for the devil to just lead you or to sort of point you to a place of addiction. Maybe alcoholic addiction or addiction to something. And that is the foothold he has on your life. That does not take away the calling of God. That does not take away what doesn't take. But that is the foothold that he has on your life. And because of that, it can somehow, somehow affect your destiny because you have given the devil a foothold. 
That's why Paul was saying, you know, don't even give the devil a foothold because that foothold, it will affect something. And the devil is, he, he doesn't have many tricks, but the few tricks he has in that little space that he has in your life, that relationship that you know you're not supposed to be in, right? That thing you know you're not supposed to entertain, that thing you know you're not supposed to be doing, that's the foothold that he has. And that's the ground and the, that's the legal ground that he can stand on to frustrate your life, whether you know it or you don't. So that's why Paul is always uh, talking about not giving the devil space, about keeping your life sealed, right? And okay, I think we're going to finish here. So Jesus basically validated the ministry of John the Baptist at a place where John the Baptist was basically doubting Jesus, right? Jesus validates the ministry of the man who was doubting him. He said, among all that are born of women, he validates him and he said he was even more than a prophet. He confirms that Elijah was talking about John the Baptist. And in verse 12, he says something very interesting. He says, And in the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent take it by force. What he's talking about is spiritual warfare. A lot of the times, I think, with this false misconception that once, you know, you give your life to Christ, everything is, you know, flowing and you just have to sit. But Jesus is actually saying, no, actually, we, since the days of John the Baptist, the kingdom of God suffered violence, but the violent take it, take it by force. And he's basically pointing us to a place of spiritual warfare. That's why even in, what's this verse? Ephesians 6 verse 12, Paul in his letter to the Ephesians, he says, we wrestle. <laughs> That's a very interesting, those two words alone, they're enough to make you pause. He's talking about people that are the new birth, people that have received Christ, people that are born again. But he starts to say, and he says, we wrestle. He doesn't say, no, we sit while God wrestles for us. No, he says, we wrestle. You and me, after we're born again, we're already in this new life. We've received, received, received. You know, I'm under the blood, whatever, whatever, whatever. all of that. Under grace even. But he's saying, we wrestle. Literally, imagine wrestling. Like, you, you know, I know everyone on this platform is watching wrestling. What those guys do, the Batistas and what, what, what they're doing in that ring. That's what he's saying. He's saying, oh, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. It's a place of spiritual warfare. The Christian walk is it's a place of spiritual warfare. You cannot be caught unaware. You cannot be caught slipping. I love that verse in the Gospels where he talks about the person who sold wheat, but then... While he was sleeping, the enemy came and saw the tears. During a moment of ignorance, during a moment where he was not alert, he comes and he saws tears. So we come back to that place. We wrestle. We wrestle again. It's, it's literally an unsolved wrestling. And sometimes the problem is we're part-time Christians and we're dealing with a full-time devil. We, want, we are part-time Christians. You know, you, you pray when you feel this need. But you have to understand that we wrestle in this life. You wrestle against powers and principalities. You wrestle through prayer. You wrestle through your knowledge of the word. That's why God said, my people perish, not because of demons and what I say. No, they perish because they lack knowledge. So you not only wrestle in prayer, but you wrestle through knowledge, like what you're doing here, like what you're listening to. You're getting knowledge. And that alone is a form of warfare. Because a lot of the times our prayers are empty because we don't know the word. You don't know what to what, what you don't know what you're praying for. You don't know what you're praying against. You don't even know what to say in prayer. You don't know the right way to pray. Why? Because there's no word in you. So you get the word and you get the knowledge. And it's on the basis of that knowledge that you engage, that you wrestle. 
that you get to this place where, where you become one of the violent that take it by force. Because you have to understand that the devil does not want you to get to where God wants you to get. He doesn't. God has a destiny for you. But the unfortunate reality is it's not guaranteed that you're going to get there. That's the very sad truth. I know it's a very strange truth. I know it's very contrary to what makes people feel good. But that's the very honest truth. God is, yeah, for I know I have the plans for you, like what he said in the book of Jeremiah. But you have to understand that it's not guaranteed. The Bible is littered with examples of people that did not get to where God wanted them to be. Why? Because they didn't do the, their part of the wrestling. God is willing to do all the things that, that are necessary on his part. One thing about God is he always fulfills his end of the bargain. But you can't negate your part. You, you always have a part to play. If you negate that part, then you won't get to the distance. I can give an example of Solomon. Solomon was a person who prophecies came about him. And he was a person who ex was expected to literally be greater than David because he was wiser than David. He was the wisest man to ever live, right? But he was warned, glory saying like Samson, definitely. Solomon, Solomon was warned that do not marry these strange women, you know? And despite all that wisdom that God gave him, he still went on and he married Moabites, whatever. He married so many different types of women. And the exact prophecy or word that he was given, that those women would turn your heart away from God. That's exactly what happened. If you read, I think it's the book of Chronicles of Kings, you'll be surprised. Solomon is actually there towards the end and he's giving sacrifices to, to the gods of his wives. And you ask, how? A man was given wisdom by God is because he negated the part that he had to play. So that's what I want you to take from the teaching today, that it's very possible to not get where God wants you to get. It's very possible. It's not even that far out of reach. Don't negate the part that you have to play and always be mindful of the love that God has for you. God loves you more than you. Always understand that. And when you get to time though you question so many things, always understand that God's love for you is greater than the love that you have for you.